90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Trying to figure out how to deliver narrated PowerPoints on my learning management system. How are you? <laughs> yeah, uh, not quite have to deal with that, but but we're back. <laughs> we are back. Yeah, we. Um, yeah, we've been real busy. <laughs> yeah, so we normally try not to miss at all. It's a pretty important thing to us. But between travel schedules that were very busy and happening to suddenly nothing was happening. Yep. <laughs> it's been slightly crazy in both of our worlds. Uh, yeah, that is correct. And I always, you know, it seems like you travel more than I do, but then the confluence of both of us over the last two weeks, yeah, made it where we dropped our microphone balls all over the place, right? <laughs> yeah, so I was in Houston uh, for the first week of March, uh, most of that week. It was supposed to be a two-day trip with just me. Uh, actually ended up making a two-day trip with my employee, which on the evening of day two, we called and changed it to make it a three-day trip. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it, it was it was a very intense trip. I think we had something like 50 person hours logged. Oh, in three days? Yeah. Ouch. Uh, it was a very fun but crazy install. Fun but crazy. Yeah, just a lot more things that we ended up needing to do uh, than, than we'd expected. Ugh. And one of my favorite things that you never want to say oh, no. is, uh, <laughs> is that smoke? <gasps> uh, <laughs> <laughs> cool. So we were working with a, a furnace. So I built a control system for a furnace that goes around a pressure vessel. And the we didn't really, we, we have no specs on the furnace. It was built in the 70s, custom built in somebody's lab, and has been handed down. Of course it has. So, so there, there is no manufacturer. There is no spec sheet. Uh, so we took a stab at how much current this thing was going to draw when fully powered up and at temperature. And then I overbuilt by a factor of five. Oh, okay. Because maybe in the future you want to upgrade the furnace and go to something bigger. You don't have to replace everything. Or maybe we're really bad at <laughs> figuring out what this might draw at full temperature. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I I fused, you know, universities, the uh, breaker panels are normally locked up. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if you trip a breaker, you're kind of out of luck for the rest of the weekend. Mm-hmm. So I always fuse things inside the control box for a lower current than what the breaker panel's at. Good so call. if something goes wrong, all the lab person has to do is pop open the panel and replace a fuse. Right. So you're or reset a breaker. Borking everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I had guessed that this was going to take about five amps per phase. And it instantly popped the fuses. Um it turns out it takes more like 10 amps per phase. No big deal. I have overbuilt the thing to handle 25 amps. We're fine. <laughs> Except the fuses, you know, aren't going to work. Right. Uh, so to stopgap it until we got some 
bigger fuses on a, a hardware store run that night, I said, let's just put some jumpers across this so we can power the system up. My jumper wires cannot handle 10 amps of phase. Uh, so about had a heart attack thinking that something had gone terribly wrong and our control box was frying itself. Instead, it was just the jumper wires proving the mechanical engineer's adage that anything can be a fuse. That's exciting. But yeah, it was a little exciting. Uh, uh, it could have been a lot more exciting, I guess. So that's good. <laughs> oh, we beefed Lord. it up a little bit and... And then, you know, once we got the right fuses, everything was fine. Nice. Uh, but had a, a brief heart attack. And then I was supposed to be uh, gone for a couple days now on a two-week-long trip to Australia. Uh, but that got canceled about 40 hours before I was supposed to board the plane. That's, um, were you already packed? I was packing. Okay. I definitely wouldn't have been packed, so it wouldn't have affected me. But I know that I am a last-minute packer, and everyone hates that fact. So, <laughs> well, and for a, a two-week international trip, you kind of gotta prepare no, a little don't. ahead. No, you and, don't. You know, like, <laughs> we were—I was getting things ready at the business to operate without me for two weeks, like leaving detailed work instructions on a bunch of projects. Yeah, um, and then it got canceled. I'm surprised it took that long to cancel. Me too. Uh, mm-hmm. Normally, a lot of these companies that we work with are pretty risk averse. Right, uh, exactly. So that got canceled, and uh, American Airlines still charged me five hundred dollars to cancel my ticket. Oh, are <laughs> you kidding me? Yeah. Uh-huh. It seems like most airlines are, you know, doing a whole bunch of stuff to to help people out in this time. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> I-, I will grant you that I have flown extensively on pretty much every major u.s carrier and i still think american is probably the least evil oh gosh i disagree we'll we can fight this out now that we, we might have to have later. an offline discussion there yeah <laughs> yeah we sure will <laughs> i mean for international travel i agree with you so there you go all right so <laughs> we'll leave it there <laughs> we'll leave it there uh but you're you're getting ready to do some some travel amongst all the coronavirus madness. If you can find enough uh, toilet paper, bread, milk, and water. Oh man. Yeah. I went to the, Oh my gosh. I mean, first of all, you know, anyone that this is affecting, this is a terrible, terrible thing. You know, it's really unprecedented, right? I read this thing that said, you know, no one alive today has been through something like this, which is really strange, but it also, this has to be like a psychology gold mine, Right. Why do people need so much toilet paper right now? <laughs> if you need that much toilet paper to survive a two-week quarantine, you need to see a doctor otherwise. You, sh- you sure do. <laughs> Look, I just... Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I went to the store tonight just to grab like some bread because we were out and some chicken to make tonight. And uh, yeah, I had to go to three different stores before I found chicken. Before yeah. I found meat of almost any kind. <laughs> Which is also interesting. <laughs> it is. It's pretty crazy. This is a... I, I'm sure we're going to have some papers on the social overreaction of this. I would think so. I would think so. It's testing a lot of things. So it's really interesting. I mean, Oklahoma isn't the worst off yet by far. I think we may have a few more cases than Arkansas, right? But still only like seven or something. And people here are 
way overreacting. But that's what I was talking about earlier is now we've gone to until April 6th. We've gone to all online classes, which is great. I agree with that. People are leaving for spring break. Come back. Take your two weeks off. Okay. But it's also <laughs> it's also been incredibly interesting to watch <laughs> at OU. People trying to figure out how to do this. I mean, myself included. I've never narrated a PowerPoint and recorded it or anything like that. But, um, yeah, it's been a big learning curve for everybody, I think. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like today, our state governor of Arkansas announced that beginning Tuesday, all public schools will be closed Mm -hmm. uh, for two weeks. And this week is not your spring break, right? This week is not our spring break. So this gives teachers 24 hours to prepare either handout packets or online tasks for their students to do for the next week. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I know some university professors as well that are in the same boat you're in and are greatly dissatisfied with the fact that they were given very short notice and no additional materials, training, or anything. I will say for OU, it's actually quite impressive. Um, we have an associate provost that came back. He left the university for a while and came back and he's really plugged into teaching, um, and he has done so much. Are you there? Hello. Okay, so associate provost that's really plugged into teaching. Yeah. Uh, and he put together this Teach Anywhere initiative and all these online and in-person trainings. I swear he did it in a day. It was pretty impressive. So um, we had <laughs> we had faculty members coming up, and they were like, I really like our learning, um, you know, our classroom management system, which is Canvas. It's really amazing. We switched to Canvas five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the switch. See, exactly. But that's great. It's great. People are learning how impressive Canvas is. So whatever. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's a really there's a really big because I mean it's up to us obviously and so there's a really big range of people like me who are like okay I'm going to record your powerpoints I'm going to have this quiz that you follow along so you have to listen to it or else you won't you know get this in-class assignment correctly send back the assignment good deal you can do it when you want right and then there are professors who are like no we're all going to Skype in at the assigned class time I'm going to make sure everyone's there that is a headache I don't need, man. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I've seen a lot of people discussing can services like Skype and Zoom handle the increased traffic because everybody's working from home now. It, yes, correct. And we don't have free professional Zoom licenses. So Zoom times out after 40 minutes and everybody's like, "Well, just buy one." And it's like, "No way. Like I'm not going to use Zoom. I use Skype. Why would I buy this? You know, you got to buy it for me." So it was a big deal to get us all professional licenses for no cost to us and everything, too. So, Well, there's, yeah, not to sound too harsh, but I have said on multiple occasions to various people, I don't pay to work here. Yes, and like, <laughs> and I am not one of those people, so I always think, I always think about you. <laughs> but also other ones of my friends are like, no, this is not... This is not up to me. So this is the thing that made me put my foot down. I'm like, no, I'm not going to pay 30 bucks a year for this thing. You know, I don't need it. You want me to use it? Fine. Then you can pay for it. Well, and, you know, they say, okay, well, 
Zoom is probably cloud-based. So they're probably using some cloud service provider. So they're like, well, they can just add more virtual machines. Like, well, at some point, all of this computing comes to somebody putting <laughs> a box in a rack and plugging it in. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. at some point, the buck stops with somebody's got to be not sick to come <laughs> yes. in and yes. expand data centers, and there has to be enough hardware available to do it. Right, correct, which you don't the, ever think about it from this end. No, I mean, the supply chain, that's the thing that fascinates me most about this whole thing is I think the supply chain is going to be brutally damaged for months. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I absolutely agree with that. People don't realize that, you know, you shut down a factory that makes parts that go in computers. The average build time of some of those parts, like a little capacitor that goes in there, might be three to four weeks so mm-hmm. from the time the factory starts back up, it's a month before anything hits the market and the market was already strained. Like this is going to have some pretty big, interesting economic ramifications as well. It sure is. So what I thought was interesting, um, and I believe this is the purview of our podcast. We're talking about technology <laughs> and I was going to ask you this. So three days ago, I got an email three days ago. Uh, from TechSmith. And so they make this piece of software that I've bought. It's probably one of the first things that I've bought and like kept up with uh, called Snagit. And it helps. Yeah. Yeah. I love Snagit. I've loved it since it began. Right. And so I got this email three days ago that says complimentary software offering for organizations transitioning to remote environments. I thought this was very savvy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and very interesting and i'm surprised this is really the only one that i've gotten and i was going to ask you if you had received several of these because this is brilliant right like here we'll give everybody this stuff you can record things it's great you know six months from now well it's um yeah six months from now you can pay for it if you want it mm-hmm. yeah way to do it snag it <laughs> i think it's brilliant and uh, I will say TechSmith makes one of my favorite products as well, which is Camtasia, which is what I use to record all the MetPy Monday videos and all of my oh. computer-based videos. There you go. I had no idea. Yeah, so kudos to TechSmith. You guys make awesome stuff. You totally do, and I think this is great. Number one, because this is actually going to help out a lot of people. But number two, I mean, look at your market that you've done. You know, you just set yourself up. It's kind of cool. I thought that was very interesting, but also very helpful. Yes, so. mm-hmm. uh, but this is tangentially in the purview of our podcast. <laughs> I think it's time to get down <laughs> to, to some hard science here. Is this because I am experiencing a lot of stress because I only have 30 rolls of toilet paper in my closet? Yeah, I will say if you Google stress versus strain right now, you get <laughs> lots of things that aren't relevant to the normal <laughs> Google suggestions. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to talk about stress versus strain in relation to toilet paper, though. That was a bad segue. <laughs> right. So I thought it would be fun to talk about uh, stress and strain and pressure and things that we talk about in structural geology as maybe some foundations that we can later build on uh, for some more advanced topics. But I, I think the stress-strain relationship is relatively straightforward, and everybody says that once they understand it. But I remember the time in structural geology where this was first presented and my mind just melting. Oh, uh, and so <laughs> in my, when we were, <laughs> I can't even talk about it without laughing. We're on a field trip. Dr. Smart was our in, structural geologist 
And my friend goes, stress, strain, what's the difference? And the poor man got beat red and he took off his hat and he literally stomped on it and he counted to 10 out loud (laughs) so he wouldn't throw my poor friend Tiffany off a cliff. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I loved it so much. He's like, what's what? What's the difference? I don't I don't care. <laughs> oh boy. And Tiffany's one of the smartest people I know, so <laughs> it was super hilarious. But I feel like, yes, a lot of people don't get this and they're used interchangeably, which is the one way to make structural geologists' heads come off and spin around. Uh, yes, or people use a stress and pressure interchangeably, which is <sighs> the way to make a rock mechanicist's head explode. <laughs> So what I say in class, and you're gonna you're gonna clean this up. This is my. <laughs> we'll <laughs> fix is, it in post. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, this is like my lie. Well, not. I say everything in intro geology is a lie, right? Because we say this is the facts, and then the rest of geology is how you realize all that I said was wrong. You know, I mean, <laughs> everything in science is a lie until you get to the math. <laughs> that is anyway. exactly right. <laughs> so I just say, you know, stress is. The force, strain is the thing that happens because of the force. Not bad. Okay, great. <laughs> Not now, bad. Now continue. <laughs> that that seems to get like, oh, okay. You know, that's what people say. So I'm good with that. Oh, that's the difference. Okay. So first, I want to talk about the types of loading that a, a body can experience. Okay. So let's say you got a chunk of rock. How many different ways can you load that chunk of rock? Do you have a guess? Eight, four, two, two. <laughs> okay, it's five. <laughs> you were getting colder. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I was at least within one place older. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, to a geologist, it's ones. Fair. You're correct. So... Uh, <laughs> The first way is compression. Okay. So this one's pretty straightforward. You stand on top of the block of rock, and it is in compression. All right. Yes. Then mm-hmm. there's tension. So you screw a hook into the rock, and you hang your Volkswagen from it. Okay. Yep. The rock is in tension. Okay. Then okay. You, got... you you can put it in shear. Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. That was my next guess. After this, I got nothing. <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> shear is, you know, you you cement or affix the bottom of the rock to the to the ground and then push on the top. So you're trying to shear it apart. You're trying to apply this lateral motion. Right. Okay, so then there's the last two, which I don't think we talk about much in geology. The last one a little bit, but these are more engineering-y. Uh, torsion. Ah. So you grab the ends of it and twist. Uh Okay, yeah, got it. Uh Yeah. And then the last one is bending. Okay. I'll give you that. Yeah, so if you were to prop, (laughs) you know, your little block of rock up on two ends and then push on the center, that would be a bending moment. So those are the five ways that you can load materials. I mean, bending is just a combo of one and two. So my answer is four. It's compression (laughs) in one place, tension in another place. Exactly. See? Yeah. Four words. That's all you need. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Torsion. I'd like to see that in, in, you know, geology context. But all right. I'm pretty sure there is torsion. I don't know if we would ever 
be able I'm, to resolve. I'm gonna, it, I'm gonna make you find it. We're gonna do a whole show about it. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I mean, okay. If you've got, uh, if you've got a magnum body intruding, it's gonna exert torsion on country it, rock around it. Is it? Yeah. Mm. I think. Yeah. I need, I need the math on that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I gotta think about that. So, uh, if you really get into this, the class you want to go take is called Continuum Mechanics. That does not sound fun. Uh, it is all of the area and path and volume integral calculus you could ever want to do to describe exactly what the state of matter is. <laughs> oh, that made me want to run away if I wasn't tethered to this table by these headphones. <laughs> but if you are doing serious structural geology or rock mechanics, this is a class you want to take. Mm, okay, sounds riveting. <laughs> Uh, yes, it is slightly uh, stressful, but har har. <laughs> uh, it's an interesting class, but you can get away with some pretty crude approximations and get 90% of where you need to go. You know, with uh, stuff like solid state mechanics or whatever. <laughs> so, so stress fundamentally is, you said it's the force. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I'm going to I knew it. add to that is it is really the force divided by the cross-sectional area. Okay. That's fine with me. I'll take that correction. <laughs> because putting one ton on a one-inch diameter core of rock and one ton on a 24-inch diameter core of rock are very different things. Yes, that is absolutely true. <laughs> and this is why if you ever watch... Uh, do you watch the Hydraulic Press channel on YouTube? I'm sorry. No, but I bet I'd probably love it. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so it's a Finnish guy and his wife. And for years now, they've been putting things in a hundred ton hydraulic <laughs> press and crushing them. <laughs> this sounds like, well, I won't say what it sounds like. Let's just say that down in our drill room, there is a hydraulic press. <laughs> right. It, it's amazing. I highly encourage you to go watch it. Um, but they measure, you know, they have a load cell, and so they'll squish something, and they'll say that took, you know, that took 14 tons, and then they'll squish something different, and in the early days of the channel, they would say, well, that was a lot stronger. It took, you know, 17 tons. Mm-hmm. And it's like, actually, it was just, you know, 50% bigger surface area on the bottom. It was weaker. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that got corrected pretty early on in the channel, I think. Gotcha. Uh, now they still talk in terms of tons, but but he does make some corrections for that. Oh, okay. Um, they smashed a Furby. That that was the most recent video. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's that's really great. Okay, interesting. This is an so, interesting channel. <laughs> it is, and so stress is force over area. The typical force we use is a newton. And the typical area is a square meter. Okay. Yep. Sounds good. And uh, <laughs> if you have trouble remembering, so a newton per square meter is also known as a pascal. Mm-hmm. So in geology, we talk about megapascals and gigapascals and kilopascals. Some people still talk in bars, but generally you don't do that unless you've been in the field for more than 30 years. <laughs> or you're a meteorologist. Or you're a meteorologist. And it's a very easy conversion 
not trying to offend anybody, just saying it, it's sort of like doing magnetic stuff in gammas. Or in Orsteds, correct. Or in Orsteds. It's just a unit that yeah. kind of fell out of favor. Correct. Um, but my favorite joke is, if you can't remember this, uh, that uh, Einstein, Newton, and Pascal were, were playing hide-and-seek. Oh, no. And so Einstein starts counting, and Pascal runs off and hides somewhere, and Newton sits right down behind Einstein and draws a box around himself with a piece of chalk. And... Einstein gets to 10 and turns around and says, Newton, I found you. You're right here. You didn't hide at all. And Newton says, no, you found a Newton in a square meter. You found a Pascal. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I'm going to not tell that one in class, but I love it. (laughs) It's terrible, but it's terrible. It's like dad joke to a terrible level. I don't even know. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> oh, anyway, great. Um, if if you live in you know the land of Yankee units, uh, <laughs> pounds per square inch psi, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that works too. Okay. Uh, all right. So, do you think that is an adequate description of stress? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so the only other thing I'm going to add is that stress is described by what we call a tensor. Yes. And so a tensor is like a matrix of numbers. It's uh, vectors of vectors. It's it's hard to describe, really, without going too deep into the math. Yes. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But so let's let's say you've got your cube of rock sitting on the table, and the, the face of the cube that's facing up at you would be the the face that is in the Z plane. Mm-hmm. You could press down on that, so you would be exerting a Z-axis stress on the Z plane. Mm-hmm. You could put your hand on top, and you could push towards the back of the table, which would be exerting a Y-axis stress on the Z plane. Mm-hmm. Or you could put your hand on it and push to the right, which would be exerting an X-axis stress on the Z plane. Right. So you can do that for all three X, Y, and Z planes. So three times three, you get nine. So there are nine components to the stress tensor, and that completely describes the state of stress in a body. Right. And some of those can be zero. Uh, yes. They, they, so the diagonal elements, like Z on Z or X on X, are the mm-hmm. perpendicular or the normal stresses. The others are shear stresses. Mm-hmm. Um, and the stress tensor has this cool property of it needs to be symmetric. So it needs to reflect about that diagonal because if it doesn't, that means that you have unbalanced shear stresses and your body is accelerating and spinning off into space. Right. (laughs) Vloop. Right. Um, But this points towards an important distinction, I think, in that this hints at the fact, and this is more of a continuum mechanics thing, that stress is supported by the body. This okay. is an important distinction when we get to pressure. Yeah. Uh, I see where you're going now. Yes. So stress is supported by the cross-section of that thing that you're applying the stress to. The whole rock is experiencing that stress. Okay. Is it homogeneous? Well, in theory, if everything's perfect and flat. <laughs> yeah. Is it really? No, but it's okay close. <sighs> um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Yep. That so, makes I sense. Mean, okay. You take a flat piece of metal and you grind your rock surface flat and you grind your piece of metal flat and you put the piece of metal on top of the rock and press. Mm-hmm. Only All about right. 10 to 15% of that area is actually touching. Yes. Anyway, um, details, minor <laughs> details. <laughs> uh, uh. But one thing that all seismologists are real familiar with is you can't have shear stresses in fluids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's also an important thing to remember. Mm-hmm. This is how we figured out the structure of the earth. Yep. Right, because, I mean, yeah, try to try to push, uh, you know, fill a glass with water and try to try to exert an X stress on that. It's <laughs> not going to go so well. My finger's wet. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, so what about strain? What 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 did you say for strain when when you teach it to your class? And so I say, strain is the thing you can measure that is an outcome of something experiencing a stress. Well, I can measure stress, right? Ah, uh, observe thing you can observe. How's that sound? Hmm. Okay, how do you observe it? I mean, non-elastic stresses, right? <laughs> well, the picture I draw is of a shell, and then I shear it, and then the shell gets all wonky in a diagonal direction. That's how I observe it. <laughs> okay, little, so you're little so you're observing circles. deformation. Oh, I knew it! I knew you were going to trap me somewhere. <laughs> 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 and there it is. <laughs> um, look in the eleven in the intro geology. That's strange. <laughs> Right, which is no. a lie that we tell everybody. <laughs> so, if you're doing like kinematics on a body, mm-hmm. there are four fundamental moves that a body can do. It can translate. Okay. It can rotate. Mm-hmm. It can dilate. Yep. Or it can distort. Okay. Yes. So dilation is like a shrinky dink. You know, yes. it's changing size, bigger or smaller, even though the term is dilation. Yeah. Um. Uh, Distortion is just changing the shape. Rotation is orientation. Translation is position. All right. right. So those are rigid body deformation. There's a whole field of semi-rigid and non-rigid deformation, and we're not going to go there. No, correct. I don't want to deal with anything. Yeah, let's ignore the word (laughs) elastic, period. So, or inelastic. Or that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Um, And there's all kinds of weird homogeneous, heterogeneous stuff here. Yes. But... Imagine, okay, you've got your your little piece of rock, and you're pressing on it. You're exerting a stress. Mm-hmm. What is that rock doing? Well, it depends, doesn't it? Well, uh, okay, let's say you've got a perfect cube of rock, and you're pressing straight down mm-hmm. on the Z face, so you're exerting a normal stress. You You sit on it. Yeah. Okay, so it's what happens to the piece of rock? Gonna compress in the z direction, and it's gonna experience the opposite in the x direction. Right, so it's going y to direction. it's going to dilate. Yeah, and it's going to distort. Okay. Yes. Um, fundamentally, if we think of the simplest strain that we could, you take the the size of that bit of rock. And you measure how much it changes. And then we describe the strain as the that fractional length change. So the 
delta length divided by the original length. Okay. Because if your rock compresses a millimeter, that means something different if the rock started out as a centimeter or if the rock started out as 500 meters. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Correct. So fractional size change, length change, is the simplest stress we could think of, or strain that we could think of. Okay. Makes sense. And that also kind of bugged me for a little while. But <laughs> Why? I just... It was weird to think of, okay, well, why are we normalizing this? I just measure it in, you know, millimeters or microns. Or, and you're done. <laughs> and you're done. It's like, well, no, that I didn't really go. work. All but right. then you say, well, what's the original length? And that's a whole ball of wax. And uh. <laughs> <laughs> like, what's the original length of this bed that got folded? Uh-huh. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, yeah, exactly. No student wants to do that. <laughs> but in the lab, it's pretty easy because you grind the rock and measure it. And there you go. Uh, (laughs) yeah so there are all kinds of weird strains that can happen like you can get shear strains where you take your box and turn it into a a rhombus or rhomboidal or yes that's what i draw yeah (laughs) Uh Um, you you can strain it just like we talked about in the normal direction Uh, you hinted at something called the poisson effect oh i know i did no (laughs) so because conservation of mass is a thing, if you're compressing it in one direction, it's going to bulge out in some other direction. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ratio of that, how much you compress it to how much it bulges out is called Poisson's number, Poisson's ratio. Yep. Um, I knew that. I knew I learned something in physics. <laughs> right. 20 years ago. <laughs> but the big number that I think we got to hit. Oh, Oh, what do you no, think the, it is? Which one are you going to say? I don't know. No, I, I keep I keep waiting for Young's modulus, but I don't know. That's if we're gonna... it. Okay. That's it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did a thing right. Okay, great. <laughs> so what's Young's modulus? Uh, isn't it stress over strain? Yeah. Yes. You're what? Thank you. Dr. Smart, thank you very much. <laughs> I learned something. I didn't say what's the difference. <laughs> I say, now, if you say Young's modulus Poisson's ratio, what's the difference? Uh, <laughs> there might be some hat stomping, but... <laughs> I'd stomp my own hat if I did that. <laughs> now, and there are lots of moduli. There's different yes. elastic moduli, and uh, Young's modulus is good enough for, for us rock for, people. For, for rocks, exactly right. <laughs> That's the one we talk about most. And so forget that we're talking about rocks and stress and strain. Think way back... When you did that experiment in like physics one, where you get a spring and you start hanging weight on it and you measure how long it is. Mm-hmm. And you made a graph of that. Mm-hmm. So one axis of your graph was weight, one axis of your graph was spring length. Right. Yep. And what was the slope of that line that it made? One. <laughs> no. I know. <laughs> It's not a it's not a line, right? Isn't it a little curvy thing? No, it should be a line if it's linearly elastic. Oh, okay, all right. So that is the spring stiffness. Mm-hmm. So how much longer does it get per weight or mass when loading? Mm-hmm. Isn't this like Hooke's law or something like that? Exactly. Okay. Well, I so, remember that part. <laughs> well, when you buy when you buy springs, if you go to McMaster Car and you're going to buy springs, uh, you search for them in terms of their rating, their stiffness, 
which in U.S. units is something like inches per pound. Really? So every I've never weight... bought a spring, so I don't, I've never, <laughs> hmm, that's very interesting. Yeah, so it's how stiff it is. So you can buy a spring that's the same size as many other springs, and one might be rated at 0.1 inches per pound, and one might be rated at 2 inches per pound. And so okay. that one would be a lot less stiff. You hang a pound on it, and it stretches 2 inches. The other one, you hang a pound on it, and it stretches 0.1 inches. Right, that makes sense. Or pounds per inch, you can, however you see it. Right. Gotcha. Uh, so with rocks, if you think about what we've been talking about, that mass that you're hanging on the spring, we're going to change that to stress. And then we're going to change spring length to fractional change in length, which is strain. Mm-hmm. So you put strain on the there x-axis, stress on the y-axis, uh-huh. and it's Hooke's Law all over again. And the slope yeah. of the line, instead of calling it stiffness, we call it Young's modulus. There you go. See? Why is this hard? Rocks or springs, said at every presentation I gave in the rock <laughs> mechanics lab. <laughs> uh, see, and that wouldn't fly in intro geology, but it would fly in, you know, a 3,000-level geology class. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it, well, it tries to fly in a 3,000-level geology Okay, class. yeah, to the five students that paid attention for real. <laughs> okay, as a PhD geologist, I get it now, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, okay, great. This is great. I mean, so, this is all until you break it, right? But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> well, yeah, so it's it's a line, except, you know, just like if you stretch a spring beyond a certain point, it doesn't come back anymore. Yeah, and then You it's can not do the line. same thing to rock. Exactly. Yep. And that's sometimes called the proportional limit or the yield limit or the yield stress. And they're all slightly different things. But in rock mechanics, we generally just call them one. Uh, we have too much scatter in material properties to really differentiate these things. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But that curve starts rolling over. Mm-hmm. Yep. So when it departs, from a line, we generally call that the proportional limit. Okay, which means so, you're not, yeah, okay. Yeah, you're no longer strictly proportional. You're no longer linear. Right. right. If you take the stress off, you won't come back to the same place you started. Yeah, that's the, oh, oops. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, I was going to use the word elasticity, but that was not what I wanted to say, so yeah. Right, so if you stop, you're not going to come back where you started. And then yeah. you start getting the curve rolling over even more. I mean, you can start describing the things in terms of calculus, like you know the second derivative, da da da. Basically, you start yielding, which means the stress curve goes pretty much flat. Mm-hmm. And then the stress starts dropping as you apply more strain. At that point, you've reached the peak strength, ultimate strength, tensile strength, compressive strength, whatever it's called for your flavor of test. <laughs> uh, and then eventually it blows apart, and that's the point of fracture. Fracture point, my favorite point. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, this has got to be every rock mechanicist's favorite point, too, right? That's the exciting part of the experiment. Uh, Unless you're not trying to break it, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was real interested in... The proportional part. Okay. How much uh, can you do to it? Well, how does the proportion... So how does that Young's modulus uh, 
and what I spent a good chunk of my PhD working on was how can I make Young's modulus change? Oh. Um, and proved that things like how fast you load the rock can make the Young's modulus appear different. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've loaded it many, many cycles, if you've developed a fabric, there are all kinds of things that can cause Young's modulus to change. Uh-huh. And I'm talking by percents. Okay. Yeah. It can be important in earthquakes. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. So that is how stress and strain are related through a single number. Okay. That makes sense to me. I've got this under control. Okay. So what about pressure? Um, I'm feeling a lot of it right now because I'm sure you're going to ask me about some equation that I don't know. Um, <laughs> Not necessarily. So, so it's, it's interesting because it's like I don't make that. So the, the thing we talk about pressure, it's like a little person swimming in a, you know, in the water and they feel it equally from all sides. Okay. That's, a, that's pressure. But I think of it in terms of atmosphere, obviously, now, and I never mix the two up. So there's lots of discussion online if you look for differences between pressure and stress. Uh, some of them, even which Chuck Doswell himself has weighed in on Reddit. <gasps> uh, oh, yes. Oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> yeah, it depends on if you're talking to a physicist or a rock mechanicist or, you know, who's, who's answering. Um mm-hmm. The point that I want to make is that pressure is exactly what you said. It's isotropic. Yes. That's the you fancy word for what I described. You can't exert pressure in a direction. Right. It's always normal to the surface. Always. Mm-hmm. Every surface in every direction. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's the big difference I want to point out. That's why when people say like, Oh, you're putting that rock under a lot of pressure. It's like, actually I'm not, I'm putting it under a lot of stress because if you notice I'm pressing in one direction on it with this hydraulic piston, not every direction. And they're like, yeah, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) Yeah. That's generally when they say, you know, we really wish you wouldn't come to our parties anymore. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Or you're like, yeah, that guy, that's who I'm going to be friends with. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> if you want to get real technical, remember the stress tensor? Sure. Yes. Nine different okay. directions. Mm-hmm. If you take the diagonal, so mm-hmm. sigma XX, YY, and ZZ, the normal stresses, you okay. average them and you flip the sign, that's pressure. There you go. <laughs> God, I love linear algebra. <laughs> yeah. So it is the the average of the normal stress components on a mm-hmm. body. Yep. And the signs flipped. There you go. I love it. Also notice I said on a body, not in it. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Pressure is exerted on faces. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is it supported by the body? Sure, but it's supported by stresses in the body. That's right. It is not itself a body force. Yes. There you go. What's hard about that? I'm just going to describe it in relation to the tensor, and I'm sure all my freshmen will be like, oh, yeah. 
Well, I mean, then you have to describe, are you using Einsteinian notation or not? And <laughs> If I had a student ask me that, I would say, I've got a grad student spot for you right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, for those not there, there are several different ways that you can write um, tensor, oh, what do you call it? Uh, subscript, I guess would be the oh. most descriptive term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, sort of a row major, column major argument. Anyway. <laughs> Einsteinian notation is the notation that most people use. Uh, mm-hmm. And so if I were writing this, instead of saying pressure is equal to minus one third times sigma XX plus sigma YY plus sigma ZZ, I would just say pressure equals minus one third sigma II. Yeah. And, and everybody would like... know what to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, exactly. it's sort of like using variables in algebra, but for dimensions in tensor Yes. Notation. Oh, I don't know why linear algebra made so much sense to me. It was like yeah. the only math class that did like immediate sense, you know, like, oh, yes, I get this. Well, once you're linear algebra, all the other classes are just dumbed down linear algebra. Yeah, essentially. Mm-hmm. I almost wish I could have taken it sooner or would have taken it sooner, but maybe I wouldn't be so math averse. Knowing how to solve systems of simultaneous equations gets you out of so many pinches and weird <laughs> scenarios that we find ourselves in. I said to my husband the other night, no. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's one of those talk to Lehman about that conversations. <laughs> oh, lovely. It's one of those things where, you know, I have a very peculiar set of skills. You know, some people are looking for them, and they're bound to pay God some money for them. <laughs> right. Uh, we just had a customer call the other day with something that they were like, you know, I don't know if this exists, but I think if it does, you can probably find it and write a program <laughs> to do it for us. <laughs> and sure enough, right? It, it was a very enjoyable conversation. Oh, God, that's great. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So that's sort of my, my stress, strain, pressure, rant the only other thing i want people to go look up and i want to know if you did these in structural geology or not did you do stress ellipses yes are st- sorry mm. more c- mm. i'm gonna find myself there Ooh. so more circles mm-hmm. yes but strain ellipses um hmm i don't know did we do this so we need to talk about more circles because not in this episode, in another episode. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but you can use a Mohr circle to solve a system of linear equations because a Mohr circle is a linear algebra solving engine. Um, yes, that was mentioned. <laughs> yeah. But because we didn't have to take linear algebra, it was just mentioned. I took that because of meteorology, right? Um, and figured that out later and was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, more circles are kind of a graphical calculator for linear yes. algebra. Yes, exactly. It was real neat. That's a real neat concept thing that comes together with people that look at the equations and people that want the graph. I liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's almost, well, it's not strictly a nomogram, but it's pretty close. It's very close. Yeah. Ah, good old nomograms. Love them. Uh, but a strain ellipse, this is so cool to me because you can make one in your kitchen tonight. 
Uh, I mean, what else are you going to do? You're in quarantine for two weeks, right? That's right. So I'm going to take my cheese wheel and I'm going to squish it, right? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so you, you get your Play-Doh or your toilet paper roll or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Play-Doh would work best for this. Uh, though, you know, if you're making biscuits or something. Oh, this is ooh, breakfast experiment. I like it. All right. <laughs> so Brain <you>, biscuits. <laughs> yeah. So you roll out the biscuit dough. And you take your little biscuit cutter and you indent the don't cut all the way through yet, indent the top. So you've got all these circles. Like hot cross buns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then and make a grid of circles. Yeah. And okay. now apply a stress mm-hmm. to one side of your dough continent that you just made. <laughs> Your, your, your dough continental crust. I love it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And See. as you press on that, it's going to strain. Yeah. And those circles are going to become ellipses. Little strain ellipses. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it is. A strain ellipse represents what a circle would look like after a certain strain is applied. And from the direction of the major and minor axis the long and the short axis and the ratio of their sizes, you can back out a lot of cool things about the strain history and the stresses that must have been applied. So I love this because while that sounds funny, it's exactly what we do in the laboratory when we're conducting these quantifiable experiments is you've got like layers of clay and you just punch little ellipses into them and then squish them and see what happens and then you can measure it (laughs) yep it's the exact same thing you described except mine's tastier (laughs) that's right (laughs) (laughs) oh man i love it um yeah yeah uh i will say that um my friend does a lot of these episodes on youtube called geology kitchen and uh, this sounds like the perfect thing to do for Geology Kitchen. It does. I'm writing strain ellipse biscuits down right now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <clears throat> I'm trying to great. come up with a clever name for them, but it's not, not happening fast enough, Oh, you let me know, and, and I'll have him name the episode after them. <laughs> oh, that would be <laughs> ellipskits? No. Nah. Oh. I'm, I'm working on it. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, there goes uh, the rest of my evening. Yeah, it sure does. Um, you should put this in the, uh, you know, that um, the anagram maker. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. So, anyway, that's what a strain ellipse is. You can make them at home. Uh, there's a lot of fun math behind them, but they also are just really cool to look at and think about. Yeah, yeah, they really are. I really liked this part of structural geology. I don't know. It made a lot of sense. Which yeah, and sometimes I remember, doesn't. <laughs> so I I meant to pull out my structure book, but it's at work. Um, I distinctly remember you could do something like if you had a bunch of fossils, you could count, or you could map where they were. Yeah, and back out a strain ellipse if you assume that they were normally like randomly distributed mm-hmm. to start with. And I can't remember the name for that procedure. Mm-hmm. I want to call it like a fry diagram. I don't, uh, I, I can see the picture in my head. Right. Let's see. Let's see if a few seconds of Google. 
See, I can't uh, do it because I just bought something from Fry Leather Company, and so that's all that comes up when I try. <laughs> I get a lot about. Uh... Oh, okay. Here we go. Maybe. I want to yeah, say yeah. This is this is the, getting there. <laughs> this is my favorite part of other podcasts when people are like, "Ooh, ooh, hold on." <laughs> And you're like real time listening to them track something down on the internet. I think it's super funny. I don't know why. <laughs> well, it's one of those things where it's like, what do you type to get random fossil <laughs> point cloud strain? Like, uh, okay, exactly. so it is it is the fry method. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's center to center point of particles. Oh, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, radius and angle, and you plot those up, and it creates a point cloud that describes a strain ellipse. There you go. Uh, yep. Fry strain got me lots of like air fryer baskets and that kind of stuff. <laughs> but if you do fry method geology, you can get to where you need to go. Okay, gotcha. I got the the little center to center picture from Fry diagram displacement of fossil to get strain. <laughs> oh, there Go- we go. Google search. <laughs> so yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. This was infinitely more enjoyable than I thought it was going to be when you said, let's talk about stress and strain. <laughs> Structural geology is fun. It is. that If I wasn't a paleomagnetist, that's what I would be. So Yeah, me too, I think. Except yeah. I'm not a paleomagnetist. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you virtually are now. <laughs> eh. uh, that's fine. We don't want you anyway. <laughs> I'll take the title of reluctant honorary. Okay, there you go. (laughs) All right. Will you take the title of um, bee drone manufacturer? (laughs) Uh, You know, I think uh, this is something that we're all going to be quite a buzz about in this week's (laughs) Fun Paper Friday. Yay! (laughs) That was almost too bad. I can't even. I can't even recover from laughing from that terrible pun <laughs> yes so you picked out this paper which blew me away uh yeah it doesn't have high-speed photography which it totally should have um but it has drones in it and this is living iot a flying wireless platform on live insects by ire et al <laughs> and uh you know so iot's internet of things yep and mm-hmm. my favorite thing to say about iot is the s in iot stands for security <laughs> well and if you want to capture this bee army i guess um so i don't know how i feel about this this is like putting those plungers on those chickens and making them walk weird (laughs) i forgot about that the dinosaur tail plungers god so terrible um i mean this doesn't hurt the bees but it's weird it's like strapping a weather station to a helmet on us and making us walk around with it all day and you know what I found more exciting is that this isn't the first time people have done this to bees, and they call them bee backpacks, and I love that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but this is novel because, okay, so you're a smart farmer, as they say, <laughs> which I think is outrageously rude, but whatever. <laughs> so you've got this field, and you want to know the conditions, right? So you can set up stuff to figure out these conditions, but what better thing to use to understand temperature, humidities, pressures, I don't think it does that, but um, is then to hook your sensors to little bees because they're all around your stuff all the time. 
there you go. Yeah, and they can fly a lot longer than a battery-powered drone. Yeah, so that was the big deal, is that, you know, these little bees can go for a while. Um, But it was really cool, what I thought you would think was cool about this, (laughs) is these little sensors on them, and I think what this was really focused on was the new way that they solve some of these problems like you can't do this because if you want to put a gps unit it's too heavy right a bee can only carry what was it like a hundred it's a hundred and change micrograms yeah. micrograms right yeah something milligrams milligrams is something tiny ish um so about a hundred milligrams is the weight of a fully pollinated packed bee (laughs) and so you can't have regular gps because it's too heavy so they did this weird thing using just radio frequencies to 2D locate these bees, right? Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I thought you would like this. (laughs) And, you know, you got lots of powers. You got power is a big one. So if you want to transmit the data from the bee, which you obviously want, you don't have to go catch all these bees and take their little (laughs) bee backpacks off and plug them into your computer one by one. (laughs) Sounds like a job for undergrads. (laughs) Sounds like a USB drive. Mm. <laughs> you almost made me spit my beer out and that would have been unforgivable <laughs> so uh you don't want to do that you want this data to get transmitted back mm-hmm. but transmitters take a ton of power yeah so they're using this cool thing called backscatter okay uh, which without getting too much into the rf because i can't get too much into the rf uh RF engineering is about the closest thing to magic there is. <laughs> Next to paleo magic. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I think a suitable analogy at the uh, geology 101 level, <laughs> because that's about where I'm going to grasp this, <laughs> is you've got a transmitter somewhere on the farm, or multiple transmitters, that are sending out radio energy. And so you can imagine that is like a bright light that turns on. Mm-hmm. And the bees either hold up a mirror or don't, a one or a zero. There you go. Yep. And so they backscatter this radio energy back and modulate the amplitude of what they're backscattering to transmit the data. And then they can figure out where they are. Hmm. Yeah. And so if you've got multiple ones of these, you can do all kinds of tricks with phase shifting and stuff uh, to lo- do the location and while you're sending data back. At surprisingly about a thousand bits a second. Uh, yeah, that seemed um, infinitely usable, <laughs> close to real time, right? Well, I mean, a thousand bits a second for just a couple readings is worlds. Uh, yeah. I mean, they said you could offload ten measurements in something like thirty milliseconds. That's awesome. Um, I love that they recharge them when they go back to their hives to go to sleep. Yes, yeah, so they experimented with that and. Uh, <laughs> They used, so you know, the, the Qi pads that you put your phone on, mm-hmm. the wireless charging. So yeah. that's pretty much a transmitter, uh, inductive coupling and some fun things. But yeah, so they basically took their little bee box and uh, set up a bi- giant antenna by it and blasted these little dudes with RF. <laughs> uh, harmless to the insect, but it was able to be picked up on the little circuit board they designed and used to recharge the batteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, the circuit board weight was a thing too. I didn't know if you had read that in any detail, as well. 
Yeah, so a typical circuit board material would have been heavier than their whole weight allowance. Right. So they used a really, really thin one and then laser etched the copper off to make the traces. Yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. So they, they also experimented with uh, using tiny photovoltaic cells, mm-hmm. saying that they think they can get enough power uh, for battery-free designs. Uh, there you go. Because God, it's so the, tiny. So tiny. Yeah, I mean, the battery was 70 milligrams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And a 3 by 3 millimeter photocell is 8 milligrams. Oh, my gosh. So the bee could still do its pollination work and carry all this stuff. Right. And they could use, like, a little supercapacitor to hold some of the energy from the sun so that when it goes back into the hive, it can transmit its data points before the little supercap goes before dead. It dies. That's amazing. This is really cool. This this looks like I couldn't quite figure it out. It looks like this is a really student-run experiment, too, which was pretty neat. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting, too, in some of the challenges section. You know, they said, well, what do we do uh, about the pollution that we would be causing by mm-hmm. the e-waste? Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. And so some of the options were, you know, like, make sure you go get the electronics off the bees before we expect them to die. Uh, or go out with a little homing thing and find the dead bees and pull the electronics off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or uh, the coolest one is just work out some biodegradable electronics. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really neat too. Yep. I say just work out. That's probably 15 years of intensive research. (laughs) Yep. It was very interesting. And I loved how they didn't say... Uh, it was a problem when they die. They said it's a problem when the insects eventually live out their lifespans. Right. <laughs> I thought that was a very classy thing. They try to keep it classy through all here because they say that, um, you know, they're not under any restrictions working with insects, but they try to be as nice and non-invasive to these bees as possible. And putting them on the little bee pack packs, they said that what they do, they put them in the freezer so they chill out literally right. and glue them on and then let them go. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of neat. Yeah. So um, no lasers, but everything else, right? Yeah. And uh, a good acronym, too. Oh, no. So uh, (laughs) they acknowledge some members Uh, of the Air Force Center of Excellence on nature-inspired flight technologies and ideas, which (laughs) is abbreviated NIFTY. NIFTY. (laughs) Yep. That's pretty good. I would love that. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. So that was fun uh, paper, literally, <laughs> and I can't wait to go catch some bees. <laughs> yes. So if you have outfitted insects in your area with a biodegradable, backscatter-capable electronic sensing backpack, we would love to see your photos of that and the data that you're getting back from that, as well as the raw I and Q measurements from your software-defined radio base station. Mm-hmm. Shannon, how can they send that data in to us? Please send us to us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter, probably a lot more in the upcoming weeks, um, at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at 
geo underscore Lehman. Um, as always, you can check out the Slack channel. We're there in the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And thank you to our Patreon supporters. Um, we couldn't make these cool stickers and give these great interviews that you listened to in the past couple of weeks without you. Um, Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And especially now more than ever, remember, don't panic. <laughs> it's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers